This podcast is brought to you by the Canada Foundation for Innovation. Resolute Bay is a tiny little hamlet uh, in the Canadian Arctic on Cornwallis Island. And I've been lucky enough to go there every summer for the past eight years. It's found in a, a polar desert, so it's a very uh, desolate, very quiet place. All you hear is the wind and nothing else. There's nothing to be moved. There's an odd plane once in a while, but that's pretty much it. Uh, you might hear a four-wheeler or an ATV off in the distance and maybe a gunshot if someone's out hunting. But apart from that, it's very, very quiet. And that, to me, was an unnerving feeling to start with. And now it's become something that I really, really treasure and enjoy when I'm up there. Hello, my name is Catherine Gerard. I'm a PhD student at the University of Montreal, and I work on the fate of mercury in the human body and in the Arctic environment. I am from a, a military family. My dad was uh, with the Canadian Forces for his entire career, and uh, so I, I qualify as an army brat. And that meant uh, moving around a lot as a kid, um, grew up on a few different military bases. It also meant that my dad traveled a lot for work, and he ended up going to Alert many times. Alert is a military base on the northern tip of Ellesmere Island, and I remember him bringing back these amazing stories, and I always absolutely loved looking at the pictures that he brought back. And um, when I started my undergrad and I was offered the opportunity Uh, to work in a lab, I was really excited about it, but I never thought it would lead me to the high Arctic. While I'm up in Resolute, outside of my research, I'm, I'm lucky to have uh, quite a bit of time to spend in the community. Uh, the community is pretty tiny. It's about 80 to 100 houses, uh, and it's smack in the middle of the tundra, so it's gray and brown rocks, uh, pretty much as far as the eye can see, rolling hills, some cliffs. The houses are all up on stilts, as is very common in the Arctic, because building on permafrost is very difficult. And you have all these brightly colored houses uh, sort of raised up above the land. There was one really gorgeous summer uh, many years ago where I got to go out on a... Um, boat ride that was for uh, seal hunting. So you get in this big uh, ocean-ready canoe uh, with a motor strapped to the back, and you leave uh, late at night, because that's typically when the weather's nicest, the bay is the most still, so it's easy to see the, the seals pop up. So uh, we left at 11 p.m. I was with uh, one of my very good friends from the community and his father, And uh, they were in their normal apparel, but strapped me into a survival suit. So those big orange Mustang um, one-piece suits that are flotation devices and also keep you warm. And um, late at night, the sun does dip down a bit, but it's always there in the sky above the horizon. But the sky gets this really beautiful pinkish color. And um, after a few hours, we stopped by a... Um, 
uh, a piece of ice that was floating in the water, like an iceberg. And uh, my friend's father sort of uh, harpooned us to the ice and tied us down there. And uh, we got off on the ice, and the guys started making some tea. So they pulled out, you know, a little Coleman stove. And we melted some ice water from the iceberg and made some tea. And I, that was probably my most memorable night in Resolute. I couldn't believe how lucky I was, how amazing this place is, and how few people get to go to the Arctic, and even fewer get to actually have tea on an iceberg in the middle of the night during a seal hunt. During my stays in Resolute Bay, I was also invited to share uh, some country food meals, which was uh, fantastic. I've had some char, I've had uh, seal and muck duck, which is the fat on uh, marine mammals. I've had caribou and all these fantastic kinds of meat. You typically eat raw or frozen in the case of caribou, and it's absolutely delicious. Um, char is a big staple in um, the Inuit diet, so that it's this beautiful um, salmonid, and when you, you gut it, the meat is just this intense orange pinkish color. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. And this fish is so fatty and tasty and delicious. And you can eat it uh, raw or you can dry it and cut it sort of like you would a mango. So you sort of dice it against the skin. That's called pizzi. And it's delicious. It tastes like candy. I study the gut microbiome and uh, how it interacts with uh, mercury, which is a contaminant that can be found in food. Uh, so mercury is this contaminant that is um, produced naturally uh, through things like volcanic eruptions or uh, erosion, but it's mainly a, um, a contaminant that's produced by our industries or by human activity. Well, if it's produced by human activity, why would we care about it in the Arctic? There's no no industries there. There's no coal combustions or cars. Um, well, the unfortunate thing about mercury is that when we produce it here at our latitudes, it's in a very volatile form. So it rises up into the atmosphere, and it's actually carried through long-range atmospheric transport, so by dominant winds, up uh, towards the North Pole. And once it gets there, through these um, reactions in the atmosphere, mercury is actually deposited onto the Arctic environment. Now, mercury, once it's in the Arctic environment, uh, it can be transformed by bacteria into something called methylmercury. And methylmercury is the most dangerous form of mercury. It's the one that we're always warned about um, when we uh, hear about these fish consumption advisories for uh, children or pregnant women, uh, we're talking about methylmercury because it's a neurotoxin. And methylmercury is a very uh, special kind of uh, metal because it can bioaccumulate through food webs. Now, what that means is that you have in this aquatic food web, for example, you have these plankton that will eat a little bit of mercury. And then you have the fish who will eat the uh, plankton that are contaminated in methylmercury. Only the fish eat a lot of plankton, so they'll end up accumulating all this methylmercury. And as you go up every trophic level, so from prey to predator to bigger predator, you'll see increasing amounts of methylmercury. And the problem with that is that uh, the Inuit rely on these animals for their country food, their traditional diet. Um, 
Now, what's really important to know, though, is that uh, this country food diet, which includes things like caribou, seal, char, is extremely healthy. It's very, very good for you. Uh, it's rich in vitamins and minerals. It's really a tremendous source of protein that's very important um, culturally, but also for health reasons. And um, the benefits of consuming country foods, they exceed the dangers posed by methylmercury. But still, methylmercury is there. It is a health issue in the North. So that's sort of why I'm interested in it. Country food is very healthy. Can we keep it healthy? Can we um, make sure that if people are absorbing mercury, that it's not uh, too uh, dangerous? So what I've been interested in is trying to see how methylmercury behaves in the meat that is consumed uh, up there. And that also applies to how we uh, eat fish here down south. And I'm also interested in how uh, mercury, once it's in the body, how it interacts with the human host and how we absorb it eventually. So when we're looking into how dietary practices affect uh, the fate of mercury in the body, we basically digest food in the lab. So I have this simulator of the human gut, um, which sounds much more impressive than it actually is. I have this set up in my uh, advisor's lab at Université de Montréal. And uh, basically, I run food through it, and it is digested. And what I'm trying to see is, are there any treatments that I can uh, apply to the meat that will change uh, how mercury will be absorbed at the end? So what I found, for example, is that cooking uh, fish will um, limit the amount of mercury that can be uh, solubilized and the amount of mercury that is potentially absorbable by the body. So if you cook your meat, your fish, you're potentially reducing the amount of methylmercury that you're exposing yourself to. Now, I've also found that uh, things that we consume with fish or that are consumed with country food up in the Arctic, like tea, for example, um, tea is very rich in these little molecules called polyphenols, which we think uh, can bind mercury very strongly, sort of like a magnet. And that drinking a cup of tea with some contaminated fish will also lead to you absorbing less methylmercury. Now, it's worth noting that all of this has been done uh, in a gut simulator in a lab. We obviously need to validate these results before we move forward and tell people what to do with their food. And uh, we need to study large cohorts of people who eat fish, who cook it, who uh, already drink tea and try to understand how they absorb mercury. But ultimately, this is putting us on a really interesting path on better understanding the fate of mercury in the body. So the purpose uh, of my visits in the community of Resolute Bay is to collect samples and conduct interviews with members of the community to sort of get an idea of what they eat, what their uh, lifestyle habits are, and what their gut microbiome looks like. The microbiome is the collection of microorganisms that sort of share our body. And our bodies are covered in more bacteria than we have human cells. So it's an absolutely staggering number of bacteria. And the portion of our body which is the most colonized is our, our guts, so our, our large intestines. That's where you have the largest collection and the most diverse collection of microorganisms. And in recent years, we've found that these bacteria are really critical to our everyday lives. So they help us process the food that we eat. They help us extract more energy from our foods. They also help us uh, develop our immune system and protect us from pathogenic bacteria. And there's this really 
crazy line of research where they're finding that the gut microbiome, so the bacteria in your colon, are actually affecting uh, your behavior and uh, your perceptions and your mind and your personality. So it's really a fascinating area of research, which is how I got into it. To work on the gut microbiome, there aren't a ton of different ways you can do it. The least invasive and easiest way is by collecting stool samples. So I basically fly up to Nunavut to this very remote community to ask people for their stool. When I uh, pick the sample up, I'll also conduct a, an interview. So I'm trying to gather as much information as I can about the person so that I, once I analyze the microbiome in the stool, I can get an idea of what might explain the bacteria that I find in there, or the types or the diversity that I'll see. Now uh, I'm known as the, the poop lady in town, so I think I have a pretty trusting relationship with them. And part of uh, the, the trust, I think, is really steeped in the fact that uh, I go back year after year. A big part of it has been trying to provide useful research to uh, the people that I work with in, in the Arctic, um, there's a lot of research being th done in the Arctic, a lot of fantastic stuff. But unfortunately, most researchers can't afford to go back and back and back to the Arctic. So this is called, they're nicknamed a helicopter researchers in the north. So people who chopper in, collect their samples and leave and are never heard from again. When people come to your land, come to your town, ask you a bunch of really personal questions, it, it's only polite and <laughs> makes sense to see them again to tell them what's up with the research, where we're at, what the results are, and what the next step is, and what that means for the community. This year, I went back to Resolute Bay as well over the course of the summer, but it was to help out a team from MIT, so uh, a team from the U.S., who are building on what I and others have done in the world of uh, microbiome research, but to a much um, on a much bigger scale. So this team from MIT, which is headed by Mathieu Groussin from the Eric Alms Lab, is uh, conducting a microbiome survey of populations from all over the world. So they're comparing microbiomes, I think it's around, it's in the order of thousands of samples from over 30 countries in both urban and uh, isolated communities. And they're trying to build this world library of the microbiome to see what healthy state microbiomes from all over the world look like. And this is interesting because people from different parts of the world will have different diets, different lifestyles, different genetics, so that will lead to very different microbiomes. Now, it's important to have uh, isolated indigenous populations involved in this kind of project because they're often um, excluded or not considered in these large-scale molecular biology studies. This kind of research down the line could inform us in terms of um, therapeutic interventions or um, help us work with uh, individuals who are not healthy and try to get them back to a healthier state by modulating their microbiome. Now, this isn't something that we can do now, but down the road, it's the goal of better understanding the microbiome and including indigenous populations or isolated populations from all over the world in this kind of study gives them sort of a, a seat at the table. In our cultural, uh, societal imagination, the North is um, a very big place, very empty. It's white, it's blue. Um, and there are maybe a few caribous and polar bears walking around up there. Um, and it's typically viewed as a place of very abundant resources, especially now 
uh, with the Northwest Passage opening and mines cropping up all over the Arctic. Um, but what we often don't think about in the South is that the North is an occupied territory and there have been people living there for thousands of years. And they're often not a part of uh, how we imagined the North, which is very unfortunate because they are, they live in the same country as us. And we just don't think about them. We don't uh, learn about them in school very much. And what I hope to have been able to do with my research and I would, what I hope to continue to do is to sort of bring back some understanding of what the North is like, what Northern communities are like. Um, I haven't lived in the North, so I certainly my experience is biased by uh, the length of my, my trips up there. But I do feel like I have some understanding and can bring that back at least to um, showcase what Northern communities are actually uh, like, what the um, problems up there are, what the what's beautiful about them, what uh, p worries people, what makes them happy in the North. Uh, I think it's important to speak more with the people who share our, our country and who we share land with. The people in Resolute Bay, uh, in my experience, have been extremely welcoming, extremely generous with their time and with my lack of knowledge of things of the North and of things of Inuit culture. They've been very, very patient and uh, fantastic teachers. And I probably wouldn't have a PhD. I wouldn't have this amazing PhD project without them. Ultimately, I hope to have been able to uh, build a strong, lasting relationship with the people who I've worked with in the Arctic. Uh, and that's probably what I'll be most proud of once I, I complete this, uh, this PhD program. This podcast is brought to you by the Canada Foundation for Innovation. Find more research stories like this at innovation.ca slash stories and subscribe to the Canada Foundation for Innovation through your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate, review, and share our podcast. It really helps others to find it.